One of the many reasons that I love the book of Lamentations is because of what it does not do. For instance, it does not resolve the pain of God's actions or the pain of life quickly. And I appreciate that. Lamentations does not answer all of our questions. It does not communicate things in a way that is tidy or comfortable or even safe. And Lamentations does not downplay the significance of the struggle and the pain of what it means to be a human being in the world. So I love Lamentations because it's not linear. Like two plus two does not equal four in Lamentations. And I love that because that's life. Life is not linear. Yes, even the Christian life is not predictable and it's not always easy to manage. And suffering of all of its forms, whether it's innocent suffering, something that's happened to you that you had, you had no culpability in, or whether it's suffering that, look, you're basically getting what you deserve, there's consequences because of your actions. Suffering at any level does not follow a formula. You can't say, well, this is gonna happen, then this is gonna happen, then this is gonna happen. And although there are attempts to identify stages of grief and things of that sort, I would tell you grief is not tame. It's not linear. The emotions, the questions, the struggles, the fears, the frustrations in the midst of any kind of hardship are very real and at times exceptionally difficult to process. You wonder what in the world is going on? What's going on inside of me? What's going on around me? And Lamentations helps us and I think that's why lament is a helpful category because it gives voice to what we feel while anchoring us in what we believe and looking forward to the ultimate resolution of all pain. That's why I say that to cry is human, but to lament is Christian. That a Christian can truly lament. They, they mourn what has happened, but they anchor their hearts to what is underneath, what they believe. They anchor their emotions to their theology. And what happens in suffering or hardship, whether it's innocent or deserved, is what you think about God, what you think about yourself, what you think about the world and sin, that begins to emerge. That's why suffering is so traumatic at the same time why it's so helpful. So if you're here today and you're troubled, if you're here today and you're burdened, if you're here today and you're weary, like maybe you woke up this morning, I've had this happen, thankfully it didn't have it happen this morning, but I've had it happen before, where I wake up and my first thought is, when can I get a nap in, right? <laughs> you ever have that? I hope so, because it happens to me all the time. I need to be normal. So uh, wake up and you've had a, seven hours of sleep, and yet you think, I can't wait to get back to bed. You may be so weary and so tired. Maybe at a spiritual level, rest isn't what you need. It's, it's not physical rest, but there's just this aching reality within you I hope today that you'll find some measure of comfort in Lamentations 4. We have this week and next week, then we're wrapping up this series on lament. In chapter one, we were introduced to the idea of lament and the graphic description of Jerusalem's destruction. We learned about the devastating consequences of our sin, and if you remember at the end of the service, we spent time confessing our sins. 
In chapter two, we saw the bigness of God's glory, the bigness of his righteousness, the expanse of his holiness, and we saw that there are times in life when God, in his righteousness and in his holiness, he feels like an adversary when he turns against our sin. And we saw that ultimately he turned his wrath against sin in the person and work of Christ. In chapter three, we climbed the summit of Lamentations, and we saw the hope of new mercies every morning. We heard words like, great is your faithfulness, and we learned that that statement is not just made looking historically on what God has done or how faithful he has been. That is a faith statement that you pronounce over a leveled city and the smoldering ruins of a people that have been displaced. It is a belief that you anchor your heart in when your life has been leveled, even then you say, great is your faithfulness. The promise of who God is and the pain of life, they just exist together and they are not always easily or necessarily reconciled. Chapter four is about brokenness. And it's about brokenness that leads to mercy. The hope of chapter three is still true, but chapter four is also dark. God deconstructs his people in order so that they will hope in him. He breaks them so that he can rebuild them. He's taken away the things that they would use as crutches so that they will look to him. And some of you know exactly what that's like. You can think back of a time in your life when God leveled your crutches, just one after another after another. Some of you, that's how you came to faith in Christ. God leveled your marriage. He leveled your job, he leveled your soul, and you in that moment realized, you know what, I'm missing something, something's wrong with me. And you came to understand that what's wrong with you is your heart filled with sin and you put your hope in Christ. And in that moment, in that brokenness, you found mercy. Others of you, you're in a season right now where you look around you and you're just like, can it get any worse? Difficulties that have come, hardships that have been a part of your life and you maybe even come to worship this morning and you just, you're barely here, like you're here but you're so hurting and struggling and I'm here to tell you that that brokenness that's going on in your life can actually be a wonderful transporter to God's mercy if you will let it. By brokenness I mean when God removes the things that we trust in. Sometimes it comes because of our own sin, sometimes it comes because of the sinfulness of others, sometimes it just comes because of the general sin that's in the world. Regardless, the end result is the same. Brokenness has an uncanny ability to awaken us to our need for God's mercy. So let's walk through Lamentations 4. We find in this chapter a broken people Jeremiah returns back to this theme of destruction that's all around him, but the focal point is different in chapter four. Like chapters one and two, there are 22 verses in the Hebrew. Each verse begins with the subsequent Hebrew letter, but these verses are shorter. They're not as long as chapters one and two. 
They also, this chapter starts with the word how, again, as it did in chapter one and chapter two, which really serves as the thematic theme for the book. By way of summary, chapter four identifies that God has removed three crutches that Israel would have put their trust in. He has degraded their culture, has discredited their spiritual leadership, and has discouraged them with the conduct of their neighbors. No nation's going to deliver them, no spiritual leader's gonna step in the gap, and their culture as they've known it is over. So let's see how this plays out. They have been stripped of everything, and yet they have everything they need. That's the twist. So first, We see their degraded culture in verses one through 11. Israel was proud of her status as God's chosen people. Israel was to be the gleaming jewel within the ancient Near East, and nations were to be drawn to her to learn about the one true God. But now, the glory of Israel has completely faded. If you were to take a picture of the the nation during the reigns of David or Solomon or Hezekiah or Josiah and then compared that to the picture now, the, the, the contrast would be utterly shocking because everything in Israel is inverted and degraded. Verse one really captures the theme for most of the, in, most of the chapter, how the gold has grown dim. There's two possible meanings here. Either first, it's referring to the actual gold of the temple, that whatever left of it was lying in the dust, since the temple was known for its beauty and for its gold, it may have been just sort of a general statement about the city's destruction, sort of a euphemism for how bad things are. You might think of it like this, that the lights have grown dim in New York City. The city no longer was gleaming as a beacon to the world. Secondly, and I think more likely though, the gold here is in reference, along with these holy stones in verse two, they are in reference as a figure of speech for the people of Israel. It says, the holy stones lie scattered at the head of every street. Verse two, the precious sons of Zion, worth their weight in gold, how they are regarded as earthen pots, the work of a potter's hands. The people who now once considered themselves to be the gold standard, who considered themselves to be precious, and who considered the other nations to be of lesser value are now humiliated. Israel no longer experienced the beauty of divine favor. They and their city had grown dim. In fact, they're described here as earthen pots, the work of potter's hands. There's nothing special about an earthen pot. To give you a present day example, you could think of it like Tupperware or a Gladlock freezer bag. You go over to someone's house for lunch today and they pull something out of the freezer, no one is gonna celebrate the Gladlock freezer bag. That's the coolest bag I've ever seen. Or Tupperware, show me again, how do you open that thing? How does that work? Both are glorious because of what's inside of them. They're disposable, they could be thrown away. Israel has lost its status as a family heirloom and now has become a commonplace 
vessel, or if you think in financial markets, her stock has tanked. In verses three and four, we see that Jeremiah uses an appeal to nature. The way in which they treat one another in the midst of this siege is terrible. He says, even the jackals offer the breast. They nurse their young. He, he points to nature and says, even, even wild animals care for one another, care for their children. But the daughter of my people, he says, have become, has become cruel like ostriches in the wilderness. An ostrich was known for abandoning its, its eggs. The idea is our people are abandoning one another. Verse five, those who once feasted on delicacies perish in the streets. He's, he's pulling the former awe of what Israel was in terms of her leaders and now showing how devastated they really are. They perish in the streets. Those who were brought up in purple embrace ash heaps. So people who have robes of glory and regality on are now stripped and are hugging ashes. Verse six, for the chastisement of the people or the daughter of my people has, be, has been greater than the punishment of Sodom, which was overthrown in a moment with no hands, were, no hands were wrung for her. The idea is that Sodom's destruction was quick and Israel's discipline was extended much longer. Verse seven, her princes were purer than snow, whiter than milk, their bodies more ruddy than coral. The beauty of their form was like sapphire. And now, verse eight, their face is blacker than soot. They are not recognized in the streets. Their skin has shriveled on their bones. It has become as dry as wood. The, the idea is that this siege in Jerusalem was so devastating that the rulers that used to reign in all of their pomp and circumstance are now wandering about the streets. They look terrible. In fact, verse nine says it would have been better to die in battle than to be subject to this awful siege. Happier were the victims of the sword than the victims of hunger who wasted away, pierced by the lack of fruits of the field. And then verse 10, it's the bottom of the barrel. The hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. They became their food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. That's how bad things became. And then why did all of this happen? Look at verse 11. What's the cause of this degradation of Israel's culture? Verse 11 tells us very clearly, the Lord gave full vent to his wrath, he poured out his hot anger, and he kindled a fire in Zion that consumed its foundations. The reason why all of this is happening is because God is disciplining his own children for their rebellion. What's happened here is that Israel's culture has come apart at the seams. They're waywardness and their spiritual adultery now is reaping its full consequences and the effect is that everything was ruined. The glory days are gone, long gone. And Israel and as a people and as a nation and as a culture is lost. They are a broken people. Part of the reason that I wanted to study this book is because I have a very sinking suspicion that we are in the midst of a unraveling of our own culture. 
And some of you may be able to think back of a time when things were different. And without getting into all of the details of how different they were, the fact of the matter is that things are different now than what they were 50 or 60 years ago. We were always a sinful people, but it's different. And what I want to help you to realize is that has been the normal lot of Christians throughout church history. We have not normally been the majority people in a culture. And the little sliver of time that some sort of Judeo-Christian ethic has been a part of our American cultural experience, that day is not only maybe fast vanishing, but that it ever was a part of our fabric is an amazing and very unusual grace. And I find believers who don't have words beyond anger, beyond fear, beyond sort of grabbing a hold of things as Christianity becomes uncoupled from their culture, as it comes apart from the scenes. And I think the book of Lamentations is really helpful to give voice to people who look around them and say, what in the world is happening? What's going on? How is this happening? And I would tell you Lamentations gives voice to remind us this is how it has often happened. And yet this is also a wonderful moment for God's people to say, we are exiles, our king is Jesus, and on him we have set our hope. And my eyes are set towards a coming kingdom where Christ will rule and reign. I am in this world, but I am not of this world. I am here on a mission and on a purpose, and although the whole world begins to give way, I know who is my help and stay. Lamentations helps us with this. So if you have alarm as to what's happening, then lament it and talk to God. That's how this book helps us. Secondly, not only is their culture gone, but their leadership is gone. When, when people are in crisis, you know what they often do? They look to a leader, someone who will deliver them. Give us a Messiah, someone to step up and give us hope, someone who will stand in the gap, someone who will lead us to better days. But in verses 12 to 16, we see that the spiritual leaders of the people have been completely discredited. In fact, they have been run off. So not only has their culture come apart at the scenes, but they've got no spiritual leadership. Verse 12, the overthrow of Jerusalem was a shocking turn of events. Kings of the earth did not believe, nor any of the inhabitants of the world, that foe or enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem, but it happened. Verse 13, we find out why. Why did this happen? This was for the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests who shed in the midst of her the blood of the righteous. So we find here that part of the reason for the destruction of the city of Jerusalem was because of false prophets who had not listened to Jeremiah's warnings, false prophets who had given people hope or false confidence that they were not in grave danger. The priests failed to teach people the law, and they failed to rebuke the people when they fell into sin. The effect was that spiritual leaders did not warn the people or call them to repent, and what's more, somehow they were involved in the shedding of innocent blood, which was likely the murder of those prophets who tried to faithfully teach what God wanted his people to hear. They were guilty of what I would describe as pastoral or spiritual malpractice. 
And the effect, according to verse 14, is that these spiritual leaders wandered about the streets. They wandered blind through the streets. They were so defiled with blood that no one was able to touch their garments. In an ironic twist of fate, the very priests who used to say, away, that's unclean, now that's said about them. And the people, verse 15, say, away, unclean, away, away, do not touch. So they became fugitives and wanderers. People said among the nations, they shall stay with us no longer. In other words, they kicked their priests out, and rightly they should have. Their discredited prophets and their priests were run out of town because of how they failed them in regards to their spiritual leadership. Verse 16, who is behind all of this? It's the Lord. The Lord himself has scattered them. He will regard them no more. No honor was shown to the priests, no favor to the elders. Actually, in the Hebrew, this this reads this way. The face of the Lord has dispersed them. The face of the priests they have not honored. The idea is that God's face has been turned against the people, and as a result, the people have no respect for the priest's face anymore. Part of God's judgment was the people had turned And they'd seen the discrediting of their own spiritual leaders. The face of the Lord historically in the Old Testament is something that generates the blessing of God. We're a long ways from the ironic blessing of Numbers chapter six where it says, the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. That same face is now bringing judgment The Lord himself has scattered them. And part of that rejection is the, or part of that judgment rather, is the rejection of the priests. So their culture is degraded and their leaders are discredited. Just a side comment. This reminds us that in the midst of when culture begins to come apart at its seams, we need spiritual people who will be spiritual and godly in the world. If I'm right that our culture is gonna continue to come apart at its seams, that means, you know what we need at the most basic level? We need godly dads who will disciple their children. You wanna do something? You concerned about what's going on in your culture? You're worried, you read the news and you're, you're upset with, here's what you do. Take your son or daughter out to lunch and open the Bible and open your mouth and say, there's some things we gotta talk about. Concerned about what's happening in the world, we need small group leaders who will gather a group of people in their home and say, let's talk about how we're gonna be able to make it all the way to the end. We need women to speak into other women's lives and be in part of Bible studies to help each other follow hard after Jesus. We need spiritual leaders who will stand in the gap. You need to be the kind of person in the marketplace that people know, not just that you're really good at what you do, but that you're a good person at the very essence of who you are because Jesus has come to rest on your soul. It means that your life does not exist in the abundance of your possessions. Your life doesn't exist in all the things that you can do. What we need now, what the church needs now more than ever, is for people to be godly and to be in the world, to be salt and light, because our world needs to know. Who in the world can we trust? Who in the world can interpret to us what's going on in the world? And the only people who can really do that are those who name the name of Jesus. Culture was degraded, their leaders were discredited, and finally we have this disappointing neighbors. We have this reference to Edom and their vain 
interest on Israel's part of having another nation help them. Verse 17, our eyes failed ever watching vainly for help. In our watching, we watched for a nation which could not save. So at one point in the story of the siege of Jerusalem, Egypt started to march towards Jerusalem and the people of Israel thought, ah, here comes our deliverance. And then the Babylonian army routed them and there was no, there's no one left. There's no, there's no deliverer. The Babylonian army could not be stopped. And there are times in your lifetime when the movement of judgment or the movement of discipline or the movement of degradation, it's not going to stop. There's nothing that actually can be done. You gotta figure out how to live in the midst of that, and that's what's happening here with Israel. Verse 18 and 19 describes the terror, the fear, the despair that people felt during the siege. As people would escape or Run for help. Verse 18, it says, they dogged our steps so we could not walk in our streets. Our end drew near. Our days were numbered for our days had come to an end. That's inside the city. Then outside, verse 19, our pursuers were swifter than the eagles in the heavens. They chased us on the mountains. They lay wait for us in the wilderness. And then verse 20, the breath of our nostrils, the Lord's anointed was captured in their pits. This is a reference to Zedekiah who attempted an escape and was captured of whom we said, under his shadow, we shall live among the nations. That's probably what they said of their king. They put their hope in him, and now he was deported and brought to Babylon as a captive. And then we turn to Edom, verses 21 and 22. Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Eden, you who dwell in the land of Uz. This is some southeast area from the people of Judah. But to you also the cup shall pass. He's promising that judgment will come. You shall become drunk and strip yourself bare. They will be ashamed. What would they be ashamed of? Because Edom just simply watched as Israel was devastated and even clapped as the city was destroyed. They viewed it as an opportunity for their own ascendancy. Ascendancy, and they watched as Israel was sacked by the Babylonians. And so there's this longing for judgment. Verse 22, the second half, but your iniquity, O daughter of Eden, he will punish, he will uncover your sins. So Edom is being warned here, as they are in the book of Obadiah, and as you'd see in other Psalms, like Psalm 137, warned here that judgment is going to come, and they ought to be mindful that if God did this to the people of Israel, he's also gonna do it to the people of Eden, of Edom. So the people of God have been, therefore, mocked by their neighbors. They have not been helped by any other nation. God has isolated them in their sinfulness. He's removed any hope of deliverance from any neighboring nation. And in the effect of this is that there is no earthly help for them. They are without help, without rescue internally, and without rescue externally. The, this is a broken people. The entire nation has come apart at the seams. There's no apparent remedy. God has removed every single crutch that they could rest upon. He has left them with only one hope, and it's found in 19 English words in verse 21 or 22. The punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, is accomplished. He will keep you in exile no longer. There is the little glimmer of hope. 
NIV puts it this way, your punishment will end, daughter of Zion. He will not prolong your exile. What's he saying? He's saying that God has so broken the people that their only hope that they have is that God, the same God who's causing this calamity, the same God who's bringing punishment upon them, the same God who's creating all of this brokenness is the same God that at one point in time will bring their punishment to an end and their exile will not be prolonged. In other words, in their brokenness, their only hope was God's deliverance. This nation was at the mercy of God. And as hard as that is, and as, a, as painful and as disappointing as that place to be is, it is not a bad place to be. In other words, let me speak this pastorally into your world. If you're at a point where you've been, it feels like stripped of everything, and you've come to worship today, and you're, you came in here, and you are empty, and you're just like, you know what, I got nothing. I'm here to tell you, That is not a bad place to be. Because God is going to bring back his people from the promised land. They will not remain in exile forever. He will keep his covenant promise to them. In their brokenness, the faithfulness of God will still shine forth. And that's not just true in the Old Testament, that's also true in the New. So I don't know where you are today on the brokenness scale. You may be able to look back on your life and see a season like that, and you can give testimony of, yeah, we hit rock bottom in 2011. Like God wiped us out. And you can't believe what God taught us in that season. It may be that you're in the middle of a confusing season of life where you've got some fearful things behind you and some fearful things in front of you and you're wondering, I, I don't know how we're gonna do this and I'm just here to tell you, if you don't know how and it's as though God is removing all the crutches around you, that is not a bad place to be at all because over and over in the Bible, God talks about the beauty of what it means to rest in him. God boxes us in in a lot of different ways. Some of you may resonate with these kind of statements. I wasn't supposed to be single at this point in my lifetime. Or my marriage was not supposed to end this way. My marriage wasn't supposed to be like this. Or I was supposed to have a real career and have figured out what I wanted to do by now, what I'm supposed to do, but here I am at 48, I still don't know what I'm doing. My kids were supposed to turn out differently. I raised them the right way, and yet they have no interest in spiritual things. You look at the pictures of when your kids were four or five, everything looked like Mayberry RFD perfect. You can even hear it in the background, a little tune whistling. And you look at that, and one moment you smile, and the next moment it really hurts. Because that is not where they're at. Oh, you wish for those days that are back, but they're, they're long gone. Their hearts aren't where they, so all the crutches have been removed. I thought at this point I wouldn't be dealing with the same sins or the same struggles or the same issues, or maybe you had a vision of what ministry was gonna be like or how you could help people, and it's just not had the kind of impact that you hoped that it would have. 
And here's the message that I want you to hear from Lamentations 4 and from a few verses in the New Testament that we're going to look at. It's this, brokenness that leads to God is never wasted. In other words, that if God has somehow leveled you or removed the crutches from your life and you find yourself flat on your back looking up to him and saying, I don't know what to do, would you help me? Like, I can't do this, would you come to help me? And you're crying out to him, that brokenness is never wasted when it leads you to that confession. It is never wasted when it leads you to that prayer. It is never wasted when it causes you to call out to God, I need your help, I need your help, I need your help. Because our problem is not the depth of our brokenness. Our problem is the depth of our self-sufficiency. And when God removes our crutches, he removes our dependency on ourselves. Listen to Psalm 51. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or else I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. This written from a man after God's own heart who blew it morally, and God leveled him, and in his brokenness and in his weariness, he cried out to God, and he said, I got nothing. I thought I had, every, I had everything and you leveled me. Why? So that I could have a broken and contrite heart. And so listen to me, your own sin may have leveled you. And if you got leveled by your sin such that the thought even comes to your brain and heart this morning, God, a broken and contrite heart you will not despise. That is a mercy gift from God. Thank God he didn't let you go on your own way and he busted you and leveled you so he could bring you back to himself. Psalm 34, 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. So if you're a parent here this morning, you got such a heavy, weary heart, you feel crushed in spirit because of the condition of your children, or you feel crushed in spirit because of what someone has done to you, can I just remind you that Psalm 34 says God is near to those who are broken in their hearts. God is near to those who are crushed in spirit. Jesus himself said this in Matthew 11, come to me, come, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lonely in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Why is, it burden, why is that burden light? It's because Jesus is the one who bears it, that's why. You want to know freedom? Freedom is not trying to be perfect, it's having a relationship with the Son of God who was perfect. 1 Peter 5, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, which means God, you have decided that I needed to have these crutches removed out of my life. So rather than being angry, rather than getting in your grill and demanding answers from you, I'm simply going to humbly receive this and acknowledge that if in brokenness it means that I can know you and love you more, that I embrace brokenness because at the end of the day what I want is I want you more than I want the marriage that I had always dreamed of or the children that I've wanted or the life and the career that I had hoped for at the end of the day. My life is not about creating this little world that I'm in control of. It's about you. That's, that's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. But here's the deal. Suffering and when God kicks the crutches away, that's when you really find out if you really believe that or not. If you have a Bible, go to 2 Corinthians. I could read this to you, but I want you to see it because some of you need to put a little star by this verse because this afternoon you need to come back to it. 
2 Corinthians 1 and 2 Corinthians 12. 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 8, I love this passage. Paul says this, for we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, 2 Corinthians 1, 8, we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. I cannot tell you how helpful it is for me to hear the Apostle Paul say that. Because I feel like a midget compared to him. And when I hear him say that, that gives me encouragement for the mornings when I wake up and my first thought is, I can't wait to get back to bed. Or I don't know how I'm gonna do this. I don't know how I'm gonna preach this. Nobody wants to hear Lamentations 4 again. We despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. Paul looks at his life. It's like, this isn't turning out. This is gonna turn out. I mean, like, I look at this. Let's pray our last prayers, because tomorrow we die. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God, who, and I love this, oh, by the way, raises the dead. I love that. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him, we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. And I'm sure Paul meant not just deliver us from this problem, but Paul meant eventually he'll deliver us, like even if they take us out, we may meet Jesus tomorrow. Can you imagine? Imagine you're in a cell, and you think that tomorrow you're gonna die, and you're hanging out with your friends, and you're praying, and you say something to them, well, brothers, let's pray. Because either we're gonna live or we're gonna die. And either way, we're good. If we live, we'll preach Christ. If they kill us, we'll meet him in eight hours. I mean, that's freedom. No complaining about the prison cell, no complaining about the difficulties. If Christ is your treasure, you are free. And what suffering or hardship does is it surfaces. So how much do you really treasure the beauty of Christ? Now go over to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Again, that verse, it's underlined in my Bible in blue ink. That's a really important passage for my life. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, another really important one in verse 7. Paul says, so to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, this is 2 Corinthians 12, 7, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will Grit my teeth and make it to the very end. Therefore, I will gloomily walk throughout life with a huge burden on my back. Therefore, I will complain the rest of my life about all of the sorrows that I have been entrusted with. What does he do? Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses that the power of Christ may rest upon me. This is what happens. You come in the church broken, and you're like, I'm broken, I'm broken. And then you see the word, and you hear this, and you're like, I'm broken. You walked in saying, 
I'm struggling, I'm struggling. You walk out going, I'm struggling. Someone says, how you doing? Terrible. <laughs> How's your week? Awful. And why is that so funny? You know why? Because that's not how we live. It's not how we think. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For Christ's sake, that I am content with weakness, with insults, with hardships, with persecutions, calamities. Why? For when I am weak, then I am strong. Mm. God broke Israel because her trust was not in him. He couldn't allow her to continue the path of rebellion against her, him. He loved her too much to go her own way. And this perspective on brokenness changes everything. God loves you too much to let you trust in those things. If you're not a follower of Jesus, God loves you so much that he's made your life miserable to bring you here to awaken the fact that there's something missing in your soul and the answer is Jesus. And I plead with you to come to Christ today. And if you're a follower of Jesus, stop placing your hope in the crutches of life and stop mourning their loss. Instead say, I will boast in my weakness because I want Jesus more than anything else. So yeah, I got kids who aren't following him. Yeah, I got a marriage that's not the way I want. Yeah, I wish that I was married. Yeah, my job's not everything I want. But at the end of the day, this is not what life's all about. What life is all about is Christ. I want Christ. I want Christ. And therefore, I'm gonna embrace him because these things, the kicking out of these crutches, when God levels you, it actually can create gratitude in you because of what it brings in your life. Listen to me, brokenness can lead to mercy because brokenness can lead you to God. And for the believer, that is the greatest treasure of all. So church, let us use our brokenness as the means by which we say, my only hope, oh God, is in you, I need your mercy. Father, would you apply now this hard passage in Lamentations 4 of the leveling of your people, apply it to us in a New Testament setting and remind us that whether it's because of our own sin or because of the sin in the world, or just because of difficult things that happen, that when our lives get leveled, your faithfulness is still real. So help us today to trust in you. When I am afraid, I will trust in God. I will trust in you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.